American artist Gene Ha is an Eisner Award-winning comic creator. In this episode, Gene shares how two letters from comic giants Marvel and DC influenced his early career. Gene also discusses his mentoring efforts with kids and how art and drawing can enable their inner superhero. Joining the conversation as co-host is Dan Curtis, co-owner of Zeppelin Comics, and I'm your host, Stefan Schultz, and this is Amuse. Hello, Gene. Thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here in California, if only virtually. (laughs) And Dan, thank you very much for co-hosting today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to always be in California. Excellent. I'm very excited to talk to you, Gene. Um, So I want to start off with your origin story. You were born in Chicago, raised in Indiana. Is that correct? Uh, Yes, it it is. So growing up in the Midwest, what were your earliest creative, artistic uh, endeavors. I mean, if we're talking about like uh, childhood artistic endeavors, I mean, I loved a lot of different art, but the one that felt most accessible to me was comic books. Back then, you would go to uh, the grocery store or the drugstore, and there'd be the uh, Hey Kids comic spinner racks, all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, you would just uh, have the joy of begging your parents for a quarter back in the 1970s and getting the comic book of your choice. And it usually be rumpled and bent and all that type of stuff. But, yeah, it was just such a joy. And comics could do things in visual storytelling that were almost impossible in any other medium. I mean, like Colossus from X-Men was just unimaginable to, inside of a movie or a cartoon done well up until, you know, up until CGI. So it was just miracles happened inside of comics that couldn't happen anywhere else. And then what was your first parlay into attempting, drawing, writing, any kind of art form? I mean, as a little kid, it was uh, taking uh, the mimeograph forms, the ditto uh, worksheets that I got from the teachers and flipping them over if they were hopefully one-sided and then getting to draw on the back. And that was so exciting to get a one-sided worksheet from my teachers. (laughs) Not just because it was half the work. Yeah, if they gave me like two pages, a two-page worksheet, but each printed on an individual sheet is like... (gasps) Oh, I've got two sheets of paper. This is great. <laughs> Excellent. When did it become um, a, a serious uh, pursuit for you? There's so many talented kids out there today. And when I say kids, I mean literally people in high school or middle school or even younger who are doing uh, close to or actual print quality work wow. that you can see on the Internet. But I went through, I was going to say four, five years of art school. But it wasn't until my fifth year of art school because I was a little slow that I actually was able to really finish up a comic book page and just get it really polished and done and think it through. Uh, I could do fancy paintings and stuff like that after going to art school, but a comic book page was just, just a real struggle for me. And that's how I broke into comics, just in my last year of art school. Nice, nice. So um, I'm looking at the, your Wikipedia page, and it says, according to Ha, his parents were well-educated Korean immigrants whose aspiration was that their three sons would obtain prestigious degrees and enter corresponding careers. How did that pan out for you? More for your parents than you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will, of course, uh, it should be pretty obvious. Um, it's, it's perfectly nice having a uh, Bachelor of Fine Arts degree, but I don't think anyone considers it prestigious. <laughs> yeah, my dad would razz me about like, uh, why, you know, why did I go to art school? What a crazy plan it was. But the cra- really crazy thing is he paid for my art school tuition. Nice. 
yeah, he never really explained to me why he was still willing to pay for my tuition if I went to art school. He didn't kind of pressure me to do, really pressure me to do something else. He would kind of tease me or mock me, but he would, he still put me through school. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. After art school, breaking into the industry, what was that like? I'm a trust fund baby. So I see other people who have had these relatively easy lives and they had trust funds. Their parents put them through college and all that type of stuff. And they talk about how they've earned everything they did. And, you know, I've earned everything I did, but I also had people supporting me all along the way. And I had mentors and I've gotten really lucky. So um, I sent out two samples, two big sample packs to comic book companies, which you could do, which you could do to Marvel and DC back then. They do not allow this then. Their official policies, if they get a pile of photocopies, they throw it in the trash. So you can't sue them later for stealing your brilliant ideas and your samples. Mm-hmm. DC was my backup, like break, going to, you know, applying for college, and Marvel was my main. And Marvel sent back a form letter, which I can send you, email you a copy of. I have, I've scanned it with all the faults you can have inside of your sample pack. Ouch. Yeah, and they, they checked them all off, except one, which they probably should have done that too, storytelling. <laughs> and then at the bottom, because they didn't feel this was complete enough to explain how bad my sample pack was. Oh, my. They then added some extra stuff that wasn't on the form that they hadn't thought of when they created the form. What types of critiques were on this form? Anatomy, storytelling, uh, <laughs> let me see. Oh, just lots and lots of stuff. Um, actually, okay, if you give me just a second, I will look it up in my Dropbox where I keep it. <laughs> wow. As a way to kind of let kids know that, you know, anyone can kind of break in uh, and don't get too discouraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often add this to the front of a slideshow of my work. Okay, so uh, I'm going to read the whole thing for you. It's not okay. super long. Uh, Marvel Entertainment Group, Inc., Dear contributor, thank you for giving us the opportunity to see your current work. We have looked it over very carefully, though, for various reasons. It does not suit the current editorial needs of Marvel Comics. However, we have taken the time to give your work a quick critique. Checklist starts. Your anatomy needs work. Your faces need work. Your line work is stiff or, underlined, heavy. Try to, underlined, loosen it up. (laughs) Your characters are, underlined, stiff. Try and make them, underlined, more dynamic. You need to work on your backgrounds, not checked off. You need to work on your storytelling, which they should have checked off. <laughs> your work is very good. We just want to see it cleaned up. More effort on the little details. Big check mark, biggest check marker of them all. Practice, practice, practice. Oh exclamation, exclamation, exclamation mark. It is the surefire way to become professional. P.S. Check out our submissions guide. We hope it's helpful. Just keep in mind that your perspective should remain consistent within each panel. That was a problem. Your textures were also inconsistent, but your detailing and storytelling were quite good. Try again. Sorry about the form letter. In order to answer the hundreds of submissions we receive every week, we have to use this form letter. Please don't hold it against us and submit your work again soon. Sincerely, the submissions editor. Wow. It's, it's like Stan himself wrote it to me. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> Uh, yeah, I want to tell them what they can do with your four Eisner Awards. <laughs> but here's the thing. They were right. This uh, letter was right. Uh, my work, my uh, samples really did need more work. How old were you when you got this letter? Uh, fifth year of art school, so probably about 21, 22 years old. So you were, you were primed and ready to go. It wasn't like you were <laughs> yeah, 12. And, and I was considered probably one of the better people getting ready to gra- senior year students at the art school at that point because I had five years of school, not just four. <laughs> So I was in a funk for a few days, spent a lot of time just laying on my couch. Yeah, how did you get past this? And then the letter from DC arrived. Oh, okay. (laughs) And Neil Posner wrote, and he did a custom letter which said, 
I'm not quoting because I can't find the letter at this point. You kept the bad one, but the good one you can't find. I tried to keep the good one too, but for some reason, like about three years ago, it disappeared before I could scan it, remember to scan it. But Neil Posner, uh, editor at DC, wrote, uh, I like your work. It's not good enough to get DC work. But if I send you a script, can you send me more samples? Here's my phone number. That's nice. Yeah, that's a personal. Yeah. That's direct support. So had you not gotten that letter, the, the, the subsequent letter, would you have done something differently? Or how would you get past that rejection? Uh, before I graduated, I was already doing work for uh, ad agencies in the Detroit, Michigan area. So uh, I might have just stayed doing that. Yeah, uh, Neil sent me more sa- two more sample scripts, uh, gave me critiques on each one. And after the second one, gave me the critique and said, I think you're ready for your first pro job. Nice. And that's how I broke in which is so much easier than almost anybody else you can name inside the industry. <laughs> That's, but, you know, when you have talent and then mixed with some skill, like you weren't born able to draw as well as you can. Yeah. Well, also, yeah. And also I, my submission to DC got reviewed by the right editor who saw what I did and was willing to invest a huge amount of time into develop me into a talent. Uh, he also, if you go to his like Wikipedia page, uh, you all see helped uh, develop a lot of other artists like Travis Charest and uh, Phil Jimenez. He was a star maker. He was a guy who found people and turned them into stars. Yeah. And so Stefan already like, like threw it out there like it was nothing. But let's talk about four Eisner Awards nice. for the comic <laughs> uninitiated. The Eisners is the Oscars for comics. Yeah. I tried to give you the segue there because I usually kill your segues. He, he usually kills my segues, but I didn't. I didn't think this one was up to snuff, so <laughs> I, had to, I had to build my own. So, but yes, please tell us all about it. Just to make it clear, uh, there's a lot of people out there who have won best artist Eisners of various sorts, like best cover artist, best penciler, best inkler, inker, whatever. Right? I have won four Eisners for either uh, best series or best story. Which is like uh, an actor or director having best movie Oscars, but having no best director or best actor uh, Oscars. So I am a valuable member of a, an award-winning team. I am part of a team that won an, four uh, different Eisners, but I have never won an individual Eisner. It's still four more than I've got. <laughs> It's, it's still yeah. very impressive. Yeah. That that was a very humble response, though, Gene. We give you all the credit. There's a few times I think I've gone up against Alex Ross, and guess who won? Because he deserved it. So you know. <laughs> what were some of the notable projects that you won the Eisners for? Uh, three of the Eisners were for uh, top ten related projects with Alan Moore, and one of the projects was for a um, Justice League story with Brad Meltzer. And I should also mention that the Brad Meltzer story that I won uh, that Eisner for, I actually kind of had a you know, friendly kind of feud with uh, Brad about what the visuals and the storytelling should look like. And he said, as each page goes along to make it more claustrophobic, make the panels smaller and the gutters between the panels, the space between the panels, bigger and bigger. And I was like, well, that feels like cheating. I'm just doing less drawing on every page. Uh, Are you sure this can work? Because I can just do close-ups and stuff to make it feel claustrophobic. And he's like, Gene, trust me on this. And I did. And he won me an an Eisner. So there you go. I almost said Oscar. It's the same. Yeah. It's, it's the exact same thing. Oh, no, 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 no. There's an important difference. Mm. Uh, you cannot sell the swag bag from an Eisner ceremony. There's just nothing <laughs> that valuable in it. Really? And there's not an obnoxious show either that goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, they, they, well, I mean, they, they televised it this year because of uh, 
pandemic restrictions and and whatnot. So it was part of it's it's always each year part of San Diego Comic Con, and since there was a virtual San Diego Comic Con this year, it allowed oh, well, I, more people to see what happens. Yeah, uh, it's been a while since I've won an Eisner. I should mention back then when I went to the ceremonies, Will Eisner was on the stage. That's that's is, awesome. So, yeah, and again, is, for the comic uninitiated, Will Eisner is the writer of The Spirit, one of the pioneers of comicdom. Essentially, he is the mentor of Jack Kirby. He's the guy who hired this young kid and said, you want to work in my studio? I'll give you your start. And you dropped another fun, famous name there, which is Alan Moore, which some people may not know his name, but do know his work for such small things like The Watchmen and V for Vendetta. Yeah, and he is famously cranky and uh, incredibly brilliant. <laughs> When I was working with him, he was just clever and uh, fun. And also, he's the fastest thinker I've ever met uh, creatively. I can usually keep up with people if we're just, like, brainstorming ideas. But I just he just ran past me. I'd be like, oh, how about this idea? And then there'd be a awkward pause as we both realized, oh, that was something Alan did 20 years ago when I was a kid. And I'm just getting my chance to do something like that now. And he's tired of doing that. It just He's an amazingly creative person amazingly fast and also he's the only write, professional writer i know who doesn't do second drafts interesting yeah. i don't i don't either but nobody cares so <laughs> <laughs> nobody asks they don't even want to see a second draft are you being paid to do it sometimes yes yes <laughs> oh wow well, they'll read they'll do rewrite it and give it back to me and say this is what we want to do so. oh yeah see that doesn't happen to Ellen Moore. okay <laughs> <laughs> must be nice yeah so is that like a, he's always done it that way, or is that what he uses his clout to do? As far as I know, working at uh, for America's Best Comics in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, he had a digital typewriter, the kind of like a single-line LCD screen. Mm-hmm. And he would type it all out and fax it over, and he'd just send in one or two pages at a time. And that was the final script. And I know other people who send in rough drafts, bits and pieces at a time, but then they fix the dialogue later or modify scenes or just say, I'm not sure what the dialogue is in this scene, but you know, here's the gist of it and I'll figure out, you know, everything later. And Alan just sent complete scripts one or two pages at a time. Do you think that's an element of the limitations of technology or is that just unique to him? Cause I remember reading somewhere oh. uh, something about Hitchcock who, when he didn't have a uh, final uh, cut on directing, he would shoot scenes. There was only one way the editor could do it. He would only give a close up of one line. He would only give a wide shot of another line. Um, or is that just the genius of somebody like Alan Moore? It's a bit as if Hitchcock had final edit and just said, Nope, I know what I'm doing. And just, <laughs> Did one shot because I'm sure then this in the versions in, in the in the films where Hitchcock did not have final edit, it was probably killing him when he saw the final movie and thought, mm-hmm. oh, I could have done that better if I'd had time to, you know, if I had the option of doing another shot, but I didn't want to risk or, you know, giving an extra shot there. But I didn't want to risk having the producers ruin the movie. Do you think there is an element of that with the technology changing our ability to um, improvise and change things easily because the cost of, of equipment, the cost of technology is, is cheaper. Do you think that is changing the way artists, especially younger artists are doing things to some extent? But I mean, I know that like, uh, say, uh, people who do say web comics and they start off with a very rough style and then polish it up later. Mm-hmm. N- almost. I've never heard of a case where they wanted to 
redo their early work beyond possibly just like um, maybe adding a page or fixing the colors because the, the colors are so bad. But generally, they keep the script and the line drawings the same. Mm-hmm. Even before we had that technology, everyone else did second drafts other than Alan Moore. And editors would ask for changes after everything was done. It was a hot mess. <laughs> and the fact that we didn't have the technology to do it easily didn't stop them. I was watching something where it was discussing how very meticulous and detailed he was with the scripting for, for Watchmen. Was it the same for your project? I think he was a little bit less detailed back then, but it was a detailed script. But it's worth keeping in mind, his scripts are really chatty. So some of the stuff is just him saying, hi, how are you doing? Uh, here's my goals for this issue, as opposed to actually t- describing something he wants you to draw right away. He's just saying, I want to create this mood. I want to create this type of thing. So, you know, hope this helps. Um, another thing is he'll also very early on inside of his relationship with uh, artists. And I should mention also, I worked with Xander Cannon on Top Ten. So he did layouts and figured out the storytelling. And he often explained the scripts to me and pointed out things I did not notice at all. So Alan would say, if you want to change some stuff, go ahead and do it if you understand what my story is about and it tells the story more efficiently than what I'm describing to you. So what Xander would do as my layout guy is, and we had studios right next to each other so we could actually have conversations in person. Uh, He would do layouts for me and then just walk down the hallway, hand it over, uh, and he'd explain what he's doing. He'd say, uh, okay, in this script he has like five heads uh, and a detailed background. I just put a single head here because I just want to focus on this and I understand what he's doing with the storytelling. Xander has a theory that Alan, when he writes his scripts, always does it first as um, a very rough, rough sketch of the visuals. And he lays out in that script where all the word balloons are going to go and then where all the heads are going to go. And then when he finally writes a script, so in that sense, that's, that's the real first draft. But then after that, he uses that rough drawing then to type his script and to describe where each word balloon goes and where each head goes in a very systematic way. Xander's theory is it'd be hard to actually write a script in the systematic way Alan does it without having a visual you're describing. So you can see the order of everything appearing in the panel. And the heads always appear in the same order on the page as the word balloons show up. So that way you don't have uh, the little tails of the word balloons, the little uh, the lines coming off the speech bubbles crossing each other, which is really annoying for the readers oftentimes. Right. So the person to the left is the first person to speak. The person to the right is the second person to speak. Yeah. So that it's it follows as you as you read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And because Alan, yeah, and because Alan is always doing that systematic description of head order, word balloon order, uh, and also amusing details in the background you might want to throw in. It creates what looks like an incredibly dense script, but doesn't make the work harder. And if you follow it like a uh, America's Test Kitchen cooking recipe you will end up with a perfectly workable, functional page of art. I feel like there's a but. No, no. Uh, if you're <laughs> but also, if you throw a little cinnamon in, you know, <laughs> you make it your own. If you're Xander Cannon and you're a visual storytelling genius yourself, uh, you can do a little spin on it and say, this recipe has onion and it has garlic. I'm going to leave out the onion because I think the garlic flavor will be really sweet if we brown it properly. You know, so that's, you know, that's Xander Cannon. And something interesting you brought up, too, about your relationship with him and, like, that you shared physical space. I wonder in today's not just pandemic-based but general kind of work for hire and whatnot where you're not in an office with all the artists and the writers and the layouts and the editors and everything, 
you know, does that hinder some of that collaboration? Yes. Back in the 60s, if you wanted to work in comics, you pretty much had to live in the New York metro area. If you couldn't take a train into downtown Manhattan, it was pretty difficult to work in comics. Unless you were a superstar, they're willing to deal with the fact that you live further away than that. Uh, so, you know, they might make an exception. They'll make an exception for Jack Kirby having moved to California by the 70s if they hadn't burned the bridges with him yet. Mm -hmm. But if you do get, live in that area, suddenly you're in a whole community of artists who you might get a chance to work inside of, the, you know, inside the bullpen or something like that. Uh, you can have lunch with some of the other artists and meet up and stuff like that. Uh, you can sit in the office of your editor and they can explain what they want and what they expect. Um, so that was really important back before I started. By the time I started, it was still a mostly American with you know a few people in places like the Philippines and one artist working out of Brazil and stuff like that. The editors weren't busy with things like, say, social media or um, – and crossovers were special events, not constant events. So they had time to actually deal with – editors had time to deal with their own stories. And everyone was mostly using the phone because fax machines were so annoying back then. So this ended up with a lot of time on the phone with them mentoring you if you were a new talent explaining how things worked, explaining to me, for instance, like uh, saying in my first year in comics, uh, my editor called me and said, hey, you won uh, the Russ Manning Most most Promising Newcomer Award. And it's like, that's great. What the F is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, we submitted your name because we thought you were a promising talent and you won it. And it's like, oh. And then they they would explain the whole process of like how were the awards given. That's given at the Eisner ceremony. Uh, if you ever get a nominated for Eisner, uh, you'll be probably be alerted by your comic book company and you might want to fly out there and attend the convention and attend the award ceremony and you know how deadlines work how are the other people in the process just a lot of hand-holding and mentoring and teaching that doesn't happen now though i should also mention you may have heard of some of the scandal plus the me too scandals going through all society and which also have included comics mm -hmm. and i've talked to some women from back that time and they did not get this kind of mentoring Sure. So again, I am the lucky bastard who got coddled throughout my career and coddled into college and out of college and all that type of stuff. So I will never claim, you know, that like, oh, God, I've had it tough and blah, 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 blah. Almost everyone else in the industry who's gotten to my level has worked harder than me. I'm not at any level, so I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I have, well, now I have... they no, the editors have no time to mentor you anyway. So there you go. For sure. I mean, there's there's definitely more titles, there's more companies, there's more people out there. And it's in some ways maybe easier to break in because there's more options, more opportunities. Yes. You can, you know, when Marvel's your prime and DC's your backup, that's because that's who was around. Yeah. There's still Marvel and DC, but you could go Image and Boom and that helps talk about kind of your move from just doing art to doing some creator-owned things uh, with Dark Horse and May. Yeah, let me just uh, say really quickly, in the modern comics landscape today, most of the amazing new talents I see coming up become uh, well-known and get a, develop a huge following of fans online before they ever hit print. So uh, I'll just give an example. Um, uh, Noel Stevenson. Uh, who is currently showrunner on uh, the Netflix She-Ra series, uh, started off posting her senior project comic book while she was still in college. And then this became incredibly popular as a webcomic. Uh, she got a book deal for it, and that led to all the rest of her career. 
Which is Lumberjanes at Boom. Yeah, Lumberjanes and actually a lot of other stuff. She's also done covers for uh, major best-selling books, commercial illustration, yeah, redeveloping She-Ra into something totally new. Yeah. Well, and then uh, HBO just announced that they're looking at Lumberjanes and her as a showrunner oh, wow. for an animated series. <laughs> You're like Encyclopedia Comica. Oh, I, I seriously <laughs> am not. I seriously am, am not. I'm not actually, I'm Guy. I am not trying to correct you in any way. I am I'm just the cinnamon sprinkle. You're, you're complimenting. Just the yeah. cinnamon sprinkle. <laughs> yes, please discuss May with us. Okay. I'd been wanting to do something creator-owned for a while, so I began looking for writers to work with, and I thought, you know, I'll write my own story. Uh, well, I'll always try to work with the best writer I can get. Therefore, I kept on trying to reach out to writers who wanted to work with me, and then just through just weird luck, the projects keep, kept on falling apart, or the writer wouldn't would drop out or something like that, and at some point, I was just like, you know, I have all these ideas in my head. I've been dying to write and draw for ages. I guess I'm the I'm the best writer I can get right now, so I might as well just try it. Like most first indie, you know, first creator-owned projects for any comic book creator, I just wanted to jam in all the things I love, and all the things that I felt like I wasn't getting from comic books or pop culture media at the time. And one of the things was that I have a lot of friends who are passionate female geeks who seemed like you know as broke as anybody else, or as protagonist like as anybody else I know. Female geeks are not the main characters of stories except for bad romantic comedies where the cute boy walks up to them, takes off their glasses and says, Oh my God, I thought you were a geek. But now that I've taken your glasses off, I can see you're beautiful. You're not a geek. And then the girl says, Oh, thank God. I don't have to be a geek anymore. I really hated that. I will now drop all my geeky hobbies and be a popular girl. Yeah. She's all that. Or the other one is uh, the female geek who is wearing a headset and giving directions to the action hero while he goes down a hallway and uh, how to cut the wires and stuff like that over the phone. And it's just like, I like geeks. I want the geek to be the main character inside my book. So I did an, an action adventure sci-fi fantasy story where the main character is a hero because she is a geek. And because she has te- uh, science skills and technical skills, and she loves science fiction pop culture, so when she ends up in a science fiction fantasy world, she knows what to do. Of the, the finished product, what percent is, is you? In the first two issues, I did all the coloring, and then the writing, pencils, inks, all that good stuff, all the art, everything pretty much except the graphic design and the lettering. Mm. And then after that, I knew I wouldn't be able to keep up coloring because the way I color is just so labor-intensive. Uh, so then I brought in a professional colorist, Westflow, uh, is his professional name. Also, I can't remember his last name. Um, anyway, my friend Wesley uh, from Texas and uh, then moved to Dark Horse. And then weirdness happened there. I moved to Lion Forge. And then, uh, yeah, it's just been just a, such a joy to be able to tell the story I want to tell. Mm-hmm. I should also mention that um, when I originally came up with the story, uh, the, the story of May is about two sisters, May and her sister, Abby, who goes by the Gnome de, uh, Gnome de Guerre. Annie. And at first, Abby was going to be the main character, who is a standard action hero, who doesn't really think things through too much, kind of pretty much in the way almost any Arnold Schwarzenegger character does, even though <laughs> Abby is very short. So she's a tiny girl, but she can actually like get punched by an ogre and then smack the ogre upside the head and just get into a fistfight and not end up with a rib cage crushed like a, like a, you know, a pop can. But May, who has always been designed this way, is not an action hero. So if she ever got punched by an ogre, just like me, she'd be dead. <laughs> so she's got to think things through. 
And at a certain point, while working on the ideas for the story, I realized, you know what? It's so much more interesting if the character, main character can be killed by that ogre than if she can't be killed. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the many reasons why I made May the main character. So many superheroes and superpowers end up just being strong and invincible. Yeah. And so it's, it's such a unique take. I'm, I'm watching a scroll and I have, I have copies of May here next to me and stuff. So I'm going to do the unenviable unev- task <laughs> of trying to describe art oh my over audio. But <laughs> it, like your art style is very distinct. Whenever you are doing like a, a cover appearance on someone else's book, I can tell right away that you did it. And some of it is, is the color work. But you also have this a thickness to the exterior lines and a softness to the interior lines, which... Despite mean, the early critiques. Right, despite yeah. early critiques <laughs> for, for, for hard lines. So the best way I can describe it or liken it to somebody who's seen other media is that it's, it's kind of cell shading. It's, it's like a Scanner Darkly, like Archer the cartoon, or yeah. like a Telltale video game. Excellent description. Is, is, at least gets you in the ballpark of what, what yeah. Gene's art looks like. And then you definitely have an affinity for the color purple. <laughs> can, you, um, can you walk us through your relationship with purple? Purple. Okay. A little before I started uh, really seriously developing May, I did a lot of reading on, because I'm a geek, I did a lot of reading on how the visual systems of the brain and the eye work. And there's a few things I realized. One is there's a visual center of the brain that focuses on outlines. And if you have a thick black outline around an object, it just drives that part of your brain crazy. It just goes, it just starts flashing like a red light. And any object surrounded by that outline, just the brain says object, distinct object. And that doesn't work if you do a broken line around the object or if the line fades out or things like that, or if that thick line extends into the outline of the object. So that's part of the reason I do that is just that it sends this immediate punch to your brain saying, here's the thing you should focus on. There's a lot of other little neurological stuff I'm doing inside my comic book art, but specifically purple. Purple is the most interesting of the chromatic colors because it's not a real optical color in the same sense that the other pure colors are. Mm. So like there's a frequency of light that's green. There's a frequency of light that's red and there's a frequency of light that's blue or, and indigo, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a frequency of light that's violet, but there's no frequency of light that's purple. Interesting. Purple is an illusion that our, yeah, our brain makes up if we get a lot of blue light and a lot of red light, but not a lot of yellow or green light. And you have, it's these two opposite things that the brain just says, ah, it's just one new color. And it's as if you had played like the lowest note on a piano and the highest note on the piano. And then your brain said, oh, it's a whole new note that's not anything else in between. And it's not two notes, it's one note, which would obviously, you know, with our ears, we can tell that's an optical illusion. That's, that's not how, how sound works. But in our eyes, that is how it works. So what purple is, it's a really interesting version of gray. And you can use it as shading for almost any other color, except the yellows and the greens in the middle, which then turn it not into purple in, in your brain. But you can use it as shading for warm colors or cool colors. It's more interesting than using a grayish color. That, that is fascinating. Super right? interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, 
there, that brings up a few things. I'm, I'm more of a filmmaker and there are a couple of things that we talk about in, and I think it's in general art and the one is a persistence of vision. Animation is just still images over and over, but your mind puts them together into a new form. And then yeah. the, the other thing, is there a term for something like what, what I call it is it's a practical effect for a subconscious impact. So like a color has, uh, it's a, that's a psychological effect, but there's a, there's a, a subconscious impact that happens when you see a color, when you hear a sound, you do that in lighting, when camera, camera movement is blurred vision, that kind of stuff is all of a, a subconscious impact. Is there a, a specific term for that? I've been always looking for something like that because that's pervasive in art. Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, I, I steal something from uh, biology or not from, yeah, from uh, a kind of animal study zoology of super signal where I'm trying to send super signals that the conscious mind doesn't understand, but the unconscious mind understands. Uh, an example of this is uh, uh, there's a type of baboon where when the females are turned on and sexually primed, their buttocks get more red. So you have these two reddish, you know, orbs. Mm-hmm. And then scientists were studying these, uh, these monkeys and, you know, showed photos of the turned on ones and the not turned on ones or just showed circles kind of in the color of the females. And then the, when they're turned on and then when they're not turned on. And then just as an experiment, they took just showed two bright red circles to these male monkeys. And when you did the bright red circles, the monkeys freaked out. <laughs> and it's not a color that any real monkey can ever get naturally. Mm-hmm. But it was just a super signal that just set their brain off. And I'm not trying to turn everybody on with all my comic book art, but <laughs> I am trying to work with the parts of their head, find the things that they that are fun or interesting, stuff like that, and set off the alarm bells in that part of your brain. Well, there's a lot of thought and process that goes with setting up the, each cell of a comic book, just like you were talking about the flow of talk bubbles and the setup of the heads and everything. And the same is true in filmmaking and whatnot. When you have a character that's dominant over another character, they're shot from below so that they look to be larger. And then the submissive character will be shot lower. And then that also pervades into like, the, the power moves in business and how the applicant's chair is lower than the, the boss's <laughs> chair and things like things like that. But it's it's really, really interesting to hear that beyond those kind of um, base level or first year, you've you've taken it to this next level. You didn't just draw thick lines because it looked cool. You had some thought behind it. It didn't just use purple because I like purple and no one else uses purple, so I'll be the purple guy. It's There's there's some psychology to it, and you're using it specifically to invoke the emotion you need from the reader, which is just another magic of comic books, which I am all for supporting. Yeah, and if I use purple instead of a more desaturated, you know, brownish or grayish color or stuff like that. It makes the whole world look brilliant, but still the whole, all the colors still fit together and look almost natural. Uh, another thing is also obviously just prints. I just am a big fan of musician prints. And um, I just think the color purple is cool because of him. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's just that Midwest coming back. <laughs> yeah, I lived in Minnesota for a while. <laughs> 
there's a term in audio and music synesthesia that the uh. certain sounds um, invoke colors. It's quite quite the same. I just think there's a lack of discipline and lack of education in younger artists that they don't understand that and they just do something exactly what Dan said. It looked cool. And don't understand yeah. why in filmmaking, why they're moving a camera, why they're using handheld, why they're using this certain type of lighting. Same thing with, with a conventional art. Why are you using certain colors? Because it looks cool is not a good enough answer to me anyway. Mm-hmm. So you you want to continue down this path or you want to change subjects? I, I mean, it's oh. it's endlessly fat. Like yes. I, I am, I'm right there with you. I just watched a whole video for like 20, 30 minutes on YouTube about how there is no color brown. <laughs> that you can't you can't make the color brown there's no brown light it's actually just a version of orange that we interpret as brown and it's like but brown's the most natural color there is trees are brown dirt you know we're all some yeah. we're all some shade of brown <laughs> <laughs> i have always have this discussion with it's it's more comical with my mother cuz she's a conventional painter and I'm a video guy. So my colors, there's only three, red, green, and blue. That's it. Mm-hmm. Everything else is a, a, a combination or lack thereof. And in the, the conventional artwork, it's red, blue, and yellow? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and that's the one to use. Subtractive and additive uh, lights and colors. Yeah. This episode of Muse is sponsored by Zeppelin Comics. Located in the heart of historic downtown Benicia, California, Zeppelin Comics is your source for comics, graphic novels, games, and gifts. A comic book store like no other. You can find Zeppelin Comics online at zeppelincomics.com. You talked, Gene, about mentoring earlier, and one of the things I found really cool about your um, career is your author visits and I know with what's going on right now that we're uh, limited to that but um, you know you you do some virtual you've adapted to doing virtual visits as well which is very 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 cool but one of the statements on your um, your website is art is a tool that changes how children see themselves and uh, first of all let's talk about your author visits and and the school ah. and the mentoring and why that statement is so important the, uh, that art is a tool that changes how children see themselves yeah i mean um i have a really huge love for uh public libraries because as a child the place where i discovered both um graphic novels in the 1970s and also where i found the best art education books was at my public library. It's, it was stuff where you would not find these books at bookstores or the school libraries. Like the public library had very advanced anatomy books and books on art theory, just South Bend Public Library in Indiana. Um, and they still do. And also they had graphic novels like uh, the French graphic novel series Asterix, a lot of Peanuts, a lot of early Marvel reprints in, bound in graphic novels. I loved Marvel comics in the 70s and the 80s. But I really loved the reprints of like uh, the original Superman strips from the 1930s and 40s and the first strips of, say, Spider-Man or Daredevil or Iron Man and stuff like that. I thought these were way more magical than the comics that were coming out during my childhood. And this just expanded my world out in a huge way and put me on a course to do what I do. There's no way I could have become anywhere as good of an artist as I am today if I hadn't had access to those books. So I want to support libraries and I want to give kids going to libraries today who can't necessarily afford to buy uh, those books or 
more likely don't even have a bookstore that stocks a lot of these books. I want to give them the access to the, some of the tools I had and support their efforts and all that. Also, I'm going to give you my theory on art. This isn't some all-encompassing thing where everybody has to accept my definition. It's the only definition of art you can use. I'm already on board. <laughs> me too. Okay. <laughs> this is my personal one that, that makes is useful for me, which is that the job of art is to make the everyday magical and the magical everyday. Uh, the original quote was from Samuel Johnson. It's a lot clumsier, but that's my short version of it. And it's the job of art is to change the way you see your everyday life so you can see the magical possibilities of how things could be different and where you can move in your life, how you can be different and how the world can be different. And it's also take these fantasy worlds and take the lessons from them and make it feel like lessons you get from those fantasy worlds feel applicable to your own life. So there's a kind of bigger ideas for my little mini quote than that, but those are kind of my basic ideas of what I want to do with art. And that's part of the reason why in May I wanted to have it start off in pretty much our world, our Earth, this is not just a stereotype, in the very boring Midwest, and then moving on to a fantasy world full of monsters and mad scientists where there's all these amazing possibilities, but also having someone from our world travel to there and use the lessons she learned in our world to deal with it. And then when she comes back to our world from there, to use the lessons from the fantasy world and apply it to Earth. That's what I want to teach kids, and I want to change how they see themselves and the world. And like uh, one of my programs is Draw Yourself as a Hero. Mm -hmm. I'll start off by uh, when it's in person. I'll have a big easel that the library provides and a big pad of paper, and I'll say, I'm going to draw a hero, and I need you, your guys' help uh, to design it. First of all, what's the problem? What's the big problem that a hero, we need a hero to solve, like global warming or sometimes uh, bad guys or something like that? And then I'll say, okay, and I'll just uh, randomly just start drawing a face, and I'll start doing a portrait of uh, the librarian who's helping me with the program. And I'll start asking what he or she uh, needs to actually deal with the problem they describe. And I'll start drawing equipment and uh, costume bits onto the character. And these are based on suggestions from the, the class? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they'll just uh, so throw cool. out ideas. And then after that's done, and I can usually do that in about 10, 15 minutes, I then ask the kids, now you're going to take your paper, write a problem at the top of the sheet of paper, and then I want you to draw yourself as the hero who solves that problem. And when you do that, you start to see yourself as somebody who can change the world. Very cool. Yeah. And then you have a, a form letter that you critique them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then I destroy their souls. <laughs> Learn how to wash dishes, kid. <laughs> that now, must be extraordinary for the kids exactly, to see you do Exactly. You're making it. me feel terrible about my own childhood. Like, <laughs> I, I want to go back to school cool. and have you come yeah. to my class. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of a few conversations I've had with some of my friends who are not in the creative industry and how they, they're they convinced that they don't have it. And I think it's because, primarily because they're not encouraged throughout their childhood to do stuff. I grew up in a, in a conventional artist's home, painter, sculptor, and I was constantly given paints and, and clay and do do this, do that, and never had any limitations. And whether or not I was any good didn't matter. She just encouraged me to do things. And I think that that's so important with kids to explore their imagination, especially when you're tying it to conventional problems. That's awesome because, you know, they understand climate change. And it's like, how can we be superheroes? And they may, you know, not go into art, but they may go into science and something and find solutions in, in the real world, which is super cool. That's an awesome yeah. little thing. So how have you adapted to the virtual visits now with what's going on? It's never quite the same as being in person and being able to actually talk to them in person. And I'll say the 
biggest thing for me that makes it hard is um, in an in-person visit, you can go up to the kid who's being very quiet mm-hmm. and you can check out what they're doing and then encourage them. And if you're on a Zoom visit, the kid who gets the attention is the one who's talking mm-hmm. on the camera all the time. And if a kid's holding back, you may never find out exactly what they're drawing or get a chance to really talk to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the librarians talk to me afterwards, when I get a chance for that kind of feedback, they do say that even the kids who don't talk and don't speak up during these type of programs really, really were excited for it. But there's just no way for me to tell. Yeah. If you are a listener to this podcast and you wanted to ask me a question about uh, comics or art or anything like that, uh, you can contact me on my website, genehaw.com. There's a, a contact form. And if you mention this podcast there, I will put an extra effort to make sure I write back to you. Or if you follow me on social media, Twitter, whatever, uh, Facebook, when I do the virtual visits, a lot of these are free because they're public libraries and you don't have to live inside the library district to attend them online. Okay. So the last couple of questions, the first one's a two-parter and it's called the best and not so best. And basically we're looking for um, what your favorite project is, what was um, great about it, what are you proud of, any of the kind of that. And then the, the not so best, what was a project that was challenging, you had obstacles, how'd you overcome them, what were the learning things. Let's start with the not so best so we can end on a positive note. I can kind of do uh, answer both questions with the same project. I'm not going to use the ones we've already mentioned on the show. So I love working on my own project, May. I love working with Alan Moore on anything. But let's go with my favorite project of all time. But the thing is, it's a short story. And therefore, I don't usually include it in the series. I worked on Showcase 95, number 11, in, from 1995, uh, when my favorite editor of all time in possibly the greatest American comic book editor of all time, Archie Goodwin, asked me, I'd like you to do a short story, and if I can get that writer, what writer would you like to work with? And I told him, Alan Moore! And he said, Alan's not working for DC anymore. He's still angry about the Watchmen thing. So then I said, well, if I can't get Alan Moore, Archie, you are my next choice. And he was like, no, seriously. No, you are a really great writer. He is. He was. He uh, he passed away quite a while ago, but he he was a brilliant writer. So he said, Okay, if you're serious, I will write a story for you. And this was during my, uh, before my eyes and my wrists gave out, this was during my heavy cross-hatching stage where my, the detail of my uh, fine line shading on figures was kind of approaching the, the sort you see on a classic uh, American currency, like $1 and $20 bills and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he sent me a script about um, Arkham Asylum and a psychiatrist who thinks he can mess with the heads of all of the uh, most famous inmates of the asylum. And then, of course, it turns out they're a little better at messing with him than he thinks. I sent in my rough sketches of what I thought the layout should be, which, because it was the Jim Lee, uh, Todd McFarlane image era, everything was dynamic and weird angles. And he was like, no, 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 no. This is a quiet psychological piece. Uh, this is Archie Goodwin. But giant capes and yeah, if you, pockets yeah, if you start and couches. Off with, <laughs> yeah, if you start off with everything pedal to the metal on the first page, and, you know, acting as if it's the climax of the story, when the actual climax of the story happens, it's not going to be exciting. We're building suspense here. So on the first page, build suspense, keep the storytelling quiet, but hint at the things that we're going to do later. And then when we actually get to the climax, then you do the funny stuff, the crazy stuff. And he just, in various ways, in examples like that, Archie Goodwin talked me through the story and told me, why my rough layout sucked. And when I mentioned my uh, Marvel rejection letter saying uh, they didn't check off, you need to work on your storytelling. 
that's one of the big reasons why I say Marvel was right. I did need to work on my storytelling, and the teacher who got me past that was Archie Goodwin. That's awesome. So that's yeah. your best and not-so-best project. Uh, my yeah. roughs was the not-best project. My roughs were awful compared oh. to what the script needed. Uh. But the final project came out beautifully. If you can track down a copy, and they're cheap, of Showcase 95, number 11, as long as you can pay for shipping, you can get them really cheap. It is one of the most beautiful stories I've ever drawn. And it's one of the best written stories I've ever drawn, too. Very nice. It's interesting you bring that up, and you've mentioned it a couple times, the importance of the editor. And I feel like when it comes to a lot of self-published comic work, and you had talked about kind of publishing your own web stuff and getting known and cutting your teeth that way. But when I'm looking for the shop and what we're, we're going to carry and whatnot, self-published often means no editor and it, it shows. Mm. So yeah. a lot of times in the, the creative process and Stefan will back this up when in film, it's, it's made in the editing. Yeah. Yeah. It can be destroyed in the editing as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Certain movies that yeah. won't be discussed here <laughs> yeah. that may or may not have been made by certain comic <laughs> that That's... were edited by, by committee. Yeah. Let's wrap up with uh, the, um, what your creative inspirations are. So the name of the podcast is Amuse. Where do you go to get inspired, uh, uh, spark your creative uh, juices, what is your muse? Okay, so one of the things with me is, because I am a relatively realistic uh, artist, when I look at other realistic artists, I oftentimes end up with this feeling of, oh, I would have done that differently, and the way they did this really annoys me because it's just a little bit off how they did the perspective or the wheel on this car or something like that. So if I really want to relax, I actually like going to artists who don't draw anything like me and aren't trying to be realistic. So uh, I'm just going to mention two creators right now. Uh, one is... Mike Mayhack and his Cleopatra in Space series, uh, which is aimed at kids. It's aimed at uh, like uh, fifth graders. It starts off as goofy fun, but if you, when you get to the fifth book and the sixth book, I think it's just coming out this year, it is incredibly sophisticated. The writing gets incredibly sophisticated. It goes from just being fun to being fun and sophisticated. And this, this art is just brilliant. It's really simple, but it's beautiful. It's one creator really just going all out. And the other one is on, online, free, line webtoon, uh, the comic strip Nothing Special by Katie Cook. It is stream of consciousness madness of um, an artist just throwing in everything she loves, quirky and weird, into one comic and having fun and falling in love with the personalities and making them as weird as she can and, and grumpy. They're all most of the main characters are teenagers and they're just sometimes they're horrible people, but they're all really entertaining. Especially the main character. As the series goes along, I like her less and less as a person, but I enjoy her more and more as a protagonist. It's not quite Breaking Bad, but it's that kind of thing. Of You don't have to like the character to enjoy the character. It's just so much fun. And it's so weird. If you like it, you're going to love it. If you don't like it, it will be incomprehensible. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much for the answer. Gene, thanks for your time. It's been fun, informative, entertaining, and we look forward to your next uh, projects. Thank you very well, much. Thank you for having me on. And thank you, the audience, for listening to this episode of Amuse. Please check the show notes for links on some of the topics we discussed. For more conversations with creative professionals, please hit the subscribe button. Until next time, that's a wrap. Amuse.